So guys, happy new year. New year, but not really a new show. I'm still doing my same old, same old in this stream of amazing content I'm pumping out. But today's episode is pretty special because ever since recording this discussion, I've been pondering over it quite a lot. So for this month, we are going to have a theme of episodes. I will present to you a series of episodes which all deal with ethics, the ethics of paranormal investigation. And for this first episode, I sat down with Heather Mosier, who most of the community know is the lead researcher and a producer of Small Town Monsters. But what I am interested in is not her job, rather her own personal interests in the paranormal. So my plan was to talk with her about ghost investigation and the ethical dilemmas we face when, you know, going to haunted locations and disturbing the land. But I did not anticipate Heather to be so open to high strangeness, to these ideas of egregoric manifestations and the phenomenon co-creating with us. So this whole discussion started off about ethics and investigation practices, but we ended up going into much, much deeper territory. So prepare to listen to an intricate discussion relating to the effects of paranormal tourism on haunted locations, the effects of paranormal tourists on the phenomena which they add onto via cursed objects. The role of historical research in forming a framework for the phenomenon to manifest into a living mythology. And even the land itself, using the mythology to lure us in so we may act as the vectors of the resurrection and the retelling of its own history. Okay, we finally decided what we we're going to talk about on air, <laughs> because with me today is Heather Mosier, who everybody knows is the, are you the lead researcher of Small Town Monsters? Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, for this show, I was thinking, who the heck wants to talk about their job? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm having Heather on to talk about her more, you know, personal investigations, which are mostly ghost hunting. And I know you're interested in spook lights, headless ghosts, and the bell witch. Yes, absolutely. Those are all things that have always caught my interest. And uh, anything that is a spooky story related to Appalachia, especially my area of Appalachia, I should say. Not that I don't love all of it, but I'm in a very specific area. I like the idea of preserving stories. So. Mm-hmm. I want to hear about all of it. So uh, we we started recording now when we got into the topic of uh, modern ghost hunting and its reliance on gadgets. I heard you on some podcasts talk about various methods that you use and, you know, spirit boxes and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, why are we uh, relying on technology so much to experience the paranormal instead of, you know, the natural old school way of experiencing it raw? (laughs) So... Mm -hmm. Uh, can you maybe explain, like, what is the appeal yeah. of using gadgets in ghost hunting? And wh- why have you gradually been uh, reducing technology in your ghost hunting? Yeah, so I think that when you first get into paranormal investigation, a lot of people's, I guess, the outline that they're used to seeing is something like ghost adventures or ghost hunters, and they employ the use of these different pieces of equipment. And so when you first start, it's exciting to be able to have an object that you can set out on the floor and, you know, 
light up and make noise and so on. And that is cool and it is helpful. But in my experience, once you get over that <laughs> initial excitement, there's there's more of a tendency to just experience the location itself rather than rely upon these things. They might be a good starting point for the night. Like maybe at the beginning of the night, you set out a REM pod um, or a music box or whatever. But then by the end of the night, a lot of times it's just being and existing in the space, at least in my experience. I bring up the SS method a lot because there have been very interesting on the verge of disturbing experiences that I've had while doing the Estes method. But that's also, it's almost like a meditation to a certain degree. You're tuning everything out as you're trying to just spit out these words that you hear. Um, so it kind of has you focus and, and center. Of course, you're focusing on the words that you hear and not necessarily the location, but it's interesting when that can correspond with questions that other people are asking or history of the place or whatnot. But yeah, some of the, some of the more intriguing stuff is definitely when we've just been sitting quietly and we see things or hear things or just feel it because I think there's something to be said also about your body just naturally reacting to things that I think we've probably lost a little bit over time living in houses and focusing on technology and I mean something as simple as that feeling you get when you know somebody's staring at you and they're behind you you just have an instinct to kind of turn around I think that we have lost that to a certain extent but when you go into these locations you're kind of forced to tap into that to a certain extent okay so it seems to me like uh, ghost not not ghost hunting but rather Rather, you know, spiritualism back in the day or, you know, communicating with the dead, even if if ghosts are dead, it relied on mediumship. And nowadays, what we call ghost hunting is us kind of transferring the mediumship over to technology. So instead of the person experiencing the phenomenon firsthand via themselves acting as a medium, we are relying on technology to act as our medium. Yeah. And that I think that that might be part of the reason that it is as popular now. I mean, not that it wasn't popular decades ago, but I think that it helps it be a little more widespread because it opens it up to pretty much anybody who wants to be involved can be. Mm -hmm. Um you don't have to know someone who has a gift. Um, you can just study what you see online if you want to and then go to a place and see what happens and kind of learn on your own. So I think in that way, it's allowed more people to be involved than before. And that could be a good thing. Okay, so the reason we are utilizing technology now is uh, availability, accessibility. The more people we have ghost hunting, is, is that really positive? Uh, we have a lot of people going into these haunted locations, uh, trashing the places, uh, <laughs> disturbing the discarnate entities if they even are entities. So how good is it that we are making this very accessible? So I think that it is a good thing because it allows more people to experience something that perhaps they otherwise would not have been able to do so. This is coming from a place that is like a very small community where I grew up. And unless you knew exactly who to talk to, you're not going to have conversations or get to experience things like that. You have to actively seek it out. So unless it's something that's actively a part of your life, I think it kind of hinders your ability to to, to experience that and wherever that may lead. Maybe it's just for fun. Maybe it's just a, a thing to do on the weekends to like blow off steam and it's not your work. Um, maybe it is part of your work. But I also think that because of the increase in tourism, as long as we do have people not saying, of course, humans suck at times. So even something like Stonehenge is not without people messing with it <laughs> um, <laughs> and degrading it to a certain extent. I've watched people try to strip moss off of the, off of the stones in Stonehenge. So there's nothing that's going to be completely safe. But some of these buildings 
buildings would otherwise be lost if there wasn't a way to sustain them. And if one of the ways is through paranormal tourism, then I think that that's fine because we're still saving those buildings, thereby saving the history. We just may be adding another chapter to their story in the form of paranormal. But there are so many beautiful, beautiful buildings that are being lost. Like one where I live is called Molly Stark Hospital, which people in the area are very familiar with it. It's a beautiful old tuberculosis hospital and it was used later for for a few other things, but it's now owned by the parks for the county, but it's just falling apart. If we had someone who won, I guess by this point, it's probably way too late financially to, to save it. But if we had someone early on who had seen it for the potential of, if nothing else, we can preserve its history in the building and then run ghost tours through it. Great. <laughs> okay. Do you think that uh, the ghosts that people claim to experience or this ghostly phenomena is more like an egregoric manifestation, you know, that is sparked by the people who are coming there with intent to experience this phenomenon? Or is it, you know, a discarnate entity? Or is it a spirit of the land or the location? I think that it's probably there's a there's a good mix of all of that, depending on where it is, and what specific location, and also the amount of people that go through that area. Because I think the whole idea of an, an egregore, you have to have the concentrated energy, right? So mm-hmm. that would have to be a place that's um, more well known and more frequented by people in general. But that isn't to say that there aren't places out in the middle of the woods that people haven't, <laughs> they don't go too often. That doesn't mean that spirits are free from that area necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's just that that's just not where our concentration is. So I don't know. There's That kind of gets into the idea of like thought forms and tulpas and things. And we get into, of course, the first one that ever comes to my mind when people get into that is Slenderman. Yes. Which... <sighs> irritates me to no end because I remember a time when that didn't exist. Like the rise of that with the internet and all of a sudden it's this entity that people are afraid of. And then the next thing you know, these girls use it as an excuse to try to kill their classmate. Like that drives me up the wall. So, Mm -hmm. but people say they see it. So, I I mean, I don't... (sighs) That one's very difficult for me, that kind of stuff. I think that there's probably something to it, but I also feel like if there's something out there that people have thought up and it has some sort of negative manifestation to it, then I guess it's the same as when I'm out actually investigating something. If I get a feeling that something's bad, I just ignore it. I, I just don't feed any energy into it. Okay, but but that goes into co-creation stuff because, I mean, even a tulpa is a co-creation if it is yes. manifested from you know somebody's psyche or intent. So it mm-hmm. is dependent on the person's intent. Now, I believe that maybe these things are reflecting back what we are providing them. So if we are providing Mm -hmm. them something negative, they will reflect back at us something Mm -hmm. negative. That's why we have many scary monsters in America. <laughs> because now people are obsessed <laughs> with the idea of scary monsters because right. they need fear and conflict. Uh, even Jordan sure. and I were uh, talking about this in an, uh, one episode like two centuries ago. Lumberjack lore was wacky and whimsical because mm-hmm. these people were going through hardships and death every single day of their lives. It's the number one most deadly occupation in America. But now when people are, you know, having the benefits of of modern living and are not going through so much hardship, we still need to feed that fear and that need for conflict. So we create monsters out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And you see that even in ancient texts, there were monsters that were, I mean, we had, they obviously they had 
a difficult time more so than we do now in the modern era without electricity and running water and things like that. And they didn't understand things. So monsters were often their way of rationalizing what's happening, whether it's okay, it's completely dark. Um, thinking about to, to Rome and Greece, right? It Once mm-hmm. the fire lights out at night, it's completely dark. So what are the noises that you're hearing? And then how do you explain to your kids other than just don't go outside because I said so? I mean, mm-hmm. you make up stories, right? You make up monsters. Yes. And I think that that's something that's inherent in us as humans. And now that we are, <laughs> now that we are inside a lot and not outside as much, I think there's that idea of the, the intrigue of what could be out there because now we don't know as much. We're not as uh, used to being out and about and reliant upon the land as we once were. But also it's kind of new and unknown in a certain way, at least the way that I look at things because we're not being raised outside all the time. People that are, aren't as fearful of monsters in the dark necessarily, <laughs> unless they've had some weird experience, but they're not yeah. going to jump at every little sound that they hear, where if you take someone who grew up in, say, the city, hmm. go drop them off in the woods, they're going to have a rough time. <laughs> Yes. I, I want to bring up your education in classics. So yeah. when we talk about history and folklore, there's an obvious difference between the two. I, I had this idea for a while now, what if what we call history and what what we think of as history is folklore, is a mythology, is something that we co-create through generations as a status quo understanding of the past so it may propel us into the future. So if we go to these places seeking ghosts and paranormal activity and whatnot and relying on what we claim to be the history of the place or the land. Is it necessarily the history of the place or is it what we have created as an illusion of the history of the place that the phenomenon can feed off of or assume the form of? Right. Well, it could be when it comes to stuff, any history, you're looking at it through the lens of whoever wrote the history down for one. So whatever we're experiencing, it's not going to necessarily be exactly the way it was (laughs) depending on where your sources are, who wrote the sources down. Was it just something that matter of fact, I mean, something like a and it's not even fair to say a census record either, because even the census records can be incorrect with certain things. Uh, for example, when it comes to um, ethnicity early on, people, if they could mm-hmm. get away with not giving away a minority in their ethnicity, then they would just categorize themselves as white because it was safer that way. Um, so even that isn't yes. necessarily an accurate depiction of what was going on. But even like with ancient history, and this goes back to the undergrad thesis that I wrote with Julius Caesar, I can pretend that Julius Caesar was a great guy if I choose to go by certain historians depictions of him. So when I go to Rome and I see where he, you know, we go to where um, he was stabbed to death, which is now a cat sanctuary (laughs) at uh, Pompey's Theater. I mean, if you wanted to really tune into that particular thing, it could be a great experience. It could be an an uplifting thing as far as just the memory of him. He was a great and beloved character. But if I were to focus on another historian's depiction of him, when you get later, later into the empire, he was a tyrant and it was horrible and justice was done that day. So I think it's how we want to see the story as well up to each individual person but you need to be aware that when it comes to historical records <laughs> it's all in the eye of who wrote the record down oh yeah we are not not necessarily reading uh, history per se but we are rather reading somebody's personal folklore because every yes. writer of a historical text is uh, processing their contemporary uh, reality mm-hmm. through their own cultural historical personal contexts 
Yes, exactly. And with some of these authors, particularly, of course, my flame of reference again would be ancient Rome or Greece. With some of the historians, it's not even necessarily their personal beliefs so much as what the emperor wanted written out there. Um, so you add the political spin on it as well. What was uh, helpful at the time politically to say is what would get put out there, um, whatever mm-hmm. was beneficial for them. So it may not even be the author's personal folklore. It could just be the political folklore of the time, if you want to <laughs> phrase it that way, um, mm-hmm. whatever was beneficial. So what we are studying is not necessarily what technically happened, but rather the mindset that got us to this place uh, in time and space that we are in now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why it's important. I think when judging any, or I don't want to say judging, but when looking at any historical text, it's important one to not put your own, like to, to thoroughly understand it, to not put your own biases on it. And then also to look at the wider range of what was happening at that point in time that could have influenced that that writing or influenced the event that they're writing about even. Because when I got into uh, like the persecution of the Bakit cult, you can't just take it at face value of, okay, these people were persecuted. End of story. There's a why behind that, first of all. So what was going on at that point in time? You have to dig a little deeper to completely understand it. And then when you start to do that, you see that humans are really good at repeating stuff. There's certain things that we have not broken ourselves of and are, are definitely going to continue to repeat from now until forever, it seems, because we just can't break ourselves of certain habits. Uh, are we still talking? Nope, I'm good. <laughs> Man, so I'm, I'm going to cut this part out, but like you constantly come in and come out and then Aww. I am just... It's like tarot reading now. I'm just <laughs> trying to piece together the narrative of what you're telling me because I'm only getting half of the words coming out of your mouth. Oh, man. <laughs> that sucks. But no worries. Like if it sometimes seems like I'm asking a stupid question or not understanding what you're telling me, it's because I don't hear what you're telling me. <laughs> no, I get it. I'll, I'll clear all of that up in editing. Uh, <laughs> but from what you're telling me, so I realized very recently when I was talking with some other cryptid podcasters on my show, when they go into a certain cryptid, they say the least interesting thing is the cryptid itself. The most interesting thing is that the cryptid is a gateway that brings them to a plethora of different historical and regional events like Mm -hmm. say we need to we want to study the mongolian death worm so we're gonna seek out the books from the 40s and 50s where the mongolian death worm was first written about by westerners uh by a (laughs) white imperial bastard who was traveling across mongolia and writing about the people and culture there in a very racist fashion and uh, via Mm -hmm. that book we can have insight into uh, the political the sociological cultural climate of the time and we would never think of going down this rabbit hole if not for the Mongolian deathworm. So I see like cryptids and monsters as kind of these lures, these characters that lure us into rabbit holes where we end up remembering these uh, certain historical details. Exactly. I would absolutely agree with that. If nothing else, it makes certain aspects of history, in in my opinion, more interesting than what they may be surface level just reading from a, a textbook. Mm-hmm. We're Okay, you, you're done? Yep, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is hard, but okay. I, I'm. This is a great experience for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So. No worries, no worries. But we'll keep the episode short then because of this. Uh, I wanted to say, so recently I interviewed Dr. Katrina Daly-Thompson, who is a doctor in linguistics for the Swahili language. Mm-hmm. They wrote a book about the Popobawa, which is a demon in Tanzania that people talk a lot about. The whole book is about how talk about a supernatural creature uh, may be used for different uh, sociological, political uh, reasons. And this opened up to me the idea that it is important to utilize polyvocalism when talking about the paranormal as well, not just uh, linguistic, cultural, anthropological studies, because uh, we need as many voices as we can gather from different perspectives of different people to form a consensus on what is actually happening. Because as you said, like with uh, Caesar, Mm -hmm. the people who were writing about Caesar uh, in the contemporary times when he was alive and after he was killed were these just a few educated men who were historians who were writing Mm -hmm. all this stuff. It was not the commoner writing history. Mm -hmm. But if we had the written accounts of the commoners, we would have a more clearer picture of what was happening at the time. Sadly, we don't. Sadly, we are (laughs) trying to piece together (laughs) uh, mythology of uh, history based on just what a few people tell us. But as you say, like it's important to have the paranormal be accessible to as many people, maybe because if we want to really figure out what it is, we need more people experiencing this, more people writing about it, sharing their different perspectives, because every perspective Mm -hmm. is valid. So we are introducing the concept of polyvocalism in paranormal investigation by making paranormal investigation more accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. But don't trash the areas you go investigate just because it's open (laughs) to everybody. (laughs) I, (laughs) I agree with you on that. Don't destroy stuff. And that's not just, again, not just paranormal things. Like I said, I've, I've seen it at Stonehenge, for goodness sakes, at Pompeii, watching people chip paint off the mosaics, or not the mosaics, but take pieces of mosaics and chip paint off the walls and the brothel. Like, come on, you're ruining it for everybody. Yes, yes. I also think, like, if people are seeking out ghosts and thinking that ghosts are discarnate souls of dead people, and they're, like, <laughs> taking off their shirts and saying, come at me, ghost, that says a lot about how much they respect the dead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, it's certainly a technique (laughs) to try, I guess, but I I definitely, I don't agree with that at all. I don't like the idea of of really provoking or anything like that. Also, what I've noticed, and again, this is my limited experience with actual investigating, but you kind of, and I suppose this would feed into the energy that you put Mm -hmm. out there. The experiences that you get are usually dependent upon the energy that you have during the investigation. For example, I've been with people that provoke and the investigation usually gets to one where you're almost in a defensive mode. It does seem to provoke something, some sort of entity. It's more of a negative interaction. And then negative feelings for days afterwards. People have nightmares or almost like an impression was made. Or I've been on investigations where we come in and we are having a great time. One of my favorite things to do during investigations is if there are toys around, like a bouncy ball, I am going to play with that. <laughs> and I have been criticized before for wanting to play with the toys because somehow that's seen as disrespectful to the if there are children's spirits that are believed to be there, it's disrespectful to them. But mm-hmm. any time that I've ever done that, any interactions that I've had have been positive or good, more uh it, it's just overall a more uplifting experience because I mean, if there are kids there, why wouldn't they want to play? <laughs> why would they shy away from the person who's willing to to play with toys with them um and have a good time instead of yelling and 
screaming and being all solemn and somber. It just, I don't know. That then relies on the belief that these are discarnate entities, that they are ghosts of dead people, that they have a human personality rather than maybe it's just a phenomenon that is reflecting back our personalities at us. As you said, like if somebody is yelling and provoking a ghost, they will Mm -hmm. be... Bombarded with a negativity, <laughs> right? Exactly, and that's what I'm saying. It could it could fall into the whole idea of what what we pump in there and what is reflected back at us, like you say. And at that point, it kind of doesn't matter whether it's an actual entity or a reflection of ourselves, because it doesn't change the experience necessarily of what we are experiencing on our level. That's why more people need to be involved so that we can have different perspectives and, and try different things and see different things. What I've noticed when it comes to paranormal, cryptids, and UFO discussion in communities is that there's actually a lot of overlap in the theories that people have, but a Mm -hmm. lot of people aren't willing to have those discussions because they don't want to cross over into the other genre. There's sometimes like hardcore beliefs that it's just cryptids. There are no such thing as ghosts or there are no such thing as UFOs, but only ghosts. And rather than sharing these overlapping pieces that I think might help us understand all of these together, we isolate ourselves and we form little tribes and units, even within the communities, but especially amongst the various communities at large. And I think we need to quit that. (laughs) I think we'd learn more if we just work together. So have you ever experimented, let's say, bringing somebody to an investigation and kind of not telling them the truth of the history or lore of the place, but rather telling them a lie? Maybe telling them about a completely made up ghost. And if you do this, would the person experience that made up ghost? Like, I am very interested whether (laughs) the ghosts are reflecting the mythology that we provide it, or Mm -hmm. if there is a hard-coded mythology that we are not influencing at all. That's a very interesting thought. I have not done that to somebody. I have gone into investigations where no one really knows much about the place, but not where someone was actively fed an entirely different story to Mm -hmm. see how that reflects. When it comes to locations in general, I like to know as little as possible because I don't want to know in the back of my mind that somehow my experience is being influenced by what I was told. So when I have had a chance to go in without like a historical tour or a paranormal discussion beforehand, that's what I prefer. But I have not told somebody false information, nor (laughs) as far as I know, have people told me false information. But that I do like that idea of seeing if that influences. And certainly it would. That would be my guess. I don't know how it couldn't. Yeah, I'm obviously referencing what Jordan and I always talk about the Philip experiment, which was Mm -hmm. an experiment to conjure a completely fictional made up ghost. Mm -hmm. And they got some results. And some of the people who knew that it was a fictional made-up ghost, even uh, had poltergeist experiences back at their homes. So they brought the phenomenon back home with themselves. So that begs the question, can we generate a new phenomenon? And can the phenomenon assume whatever outfit we provide it? So are we coming to these haunted places with an already preconceived notion of what we are expecting and the phenomenon is just reflecting back at us what we are expecting? Yeah, I think that that's definitely the case at times because we have examples with even uh, cursed object lore where there was no evidence of people having issues taking a a rock or a piece of wood or something from a location. But then we have tourists that are taking too 
many things. And so the tour guide creates a story of, you know, this place is haunted. And if you take something, you're going to have to send it back because you're cursed. And pretty soon they start getting things sent back to them because mm-hmm. people's lives are falling apart. And, oh, it has to be because I took that that cursed object. I'm not saying that there aren't objects that may hold something to them, but I definitely know that we have had examples where when people put that out there, when it didn't exist prior, all of a sudden there is something that seems to flip in humans' minds of, uh, if nothing else, an excuse to rationalize when things aren't going properly in their lives, when they're just basically trying to find sense of things. Um, and then they go, okay, what is the what is something that I did? Because surely this is my fault. <laughs> oh, right. I stole something from that train station or you know whatever. It has to be that. Just trying to regain control mm-hmm. to a certain extent. So I don't know. I, I can definitely see that. I'm not surprised that experiment went the way that it did. And depending on who you talk to and their life experiences, they would probably have different excuses as to why that occurred, different ways for them to rationalize the unknown. Because that's kind of what we're, our goal is with a lot of this, is to rationalize the things that we don't know. Even the ancient people coming up with stories of monsters outside because they didn't know what was happening. You know, they they wanted a reason an understanding of something that they didn't fully understand and that's where we get these stories. Yeah, that begs the question, are cursed objects actually cursed themselves or is the history or the mythology of them cursed? Is just the idea of the object cursed and not necessarily the object itself? Right. Yeah, that is that is a very good question because the one that I've done the most research on as far as the location with cursed objects of course is the Bell Witch Cave. Yes. And um, it's been interesting to see that it's not that idea of cursed objects, which had initially had been just rocks from the cave, has since expanded. It's not isolated simply to the rocks anymore. People now are, like there was a, a letter where somebody had sent back their shoe, I believe, because there was dirt on the shoe from the parking lot area. So they sent that back. Now they're also having at times people send back these porcelain dolls that the owner of the cave paints up and sells in the gift shop. She paints them to look more grotesque or zombie-like. And someone, it's happened on more than one occasion where people have claimed that things have occurred once they brought those dolls home. And there was at least one instance where the doll was sent back to the cave because they said things were happening. So we're expanding not just the cursed object itself. I mean, you're expanding the idea of now it's it's not just the cave. Those dolls are not even in the cave. They're at the gift shop. They're on the land though. So now we're expanding it to the land. And even if you go further out to the school in Adams, which is now like, it's funny, Adams is such a small town. The old Bell School is like the town hall slash historical museum slash restaurant slash salon like they've got <laughs> all kinds of stuff in this old uh, school building but anyway if you talk to people there tim henson is their town historian he has stories of people sending books back that they bought at the museum that were they call them the little red book or little black book there's like two different versions they'll send those back or they'll have people send back goose feathers because there are birds sometimes outside they took a feather and they'll send that back it's and so now it's not even just the land that the cave is on now we've expanded to the town in general which i'm sure that that piece of land eventually or at one point was probably part of the bell farm but still it's just it's it's a ripple effect it just expands and expands you know what this reminds me of so there is this idea of sending out your intent like doing Mm -hmm. chaos magic let's say by sending a letter somewhere to somebody and you're via the letter sending your intent to manifest something that you are intending now what Mm -hmm. if these people are actually having you know random bad stuff happen in their life regardless of them taking something from the bell witch (laughs) cave or otherwise (laughs) and because they are being plagued by just normal everyday bad occurrences they are actually focusing their intent on this object and sending mm-hmm. it sending it back with this intent so now th- it's not the object that it's cursed
forest and it has nothing to do with the Bell Witch Cave, right. but rather they are sending all of the negative energy from their own life and sending that intent back to that location where it is now accumulating. Right. I really like that idea. It would be extremely interesting if these letters had a follow-up to them as well. So one, we could even determine if the negative energy left their lives because mm-hmm. um, it's possible... <laughs> That just sending the rock back didn't do anything. <laughs> but that is very that is a very intriguing thought. And then also would add to other things that I've seen at paranormal locations where people will bring items in and leave them. And then that affects the haunting. There's a whole line of uh-huh. a whole line of theory and experimentation that's happening now within the paranormal community where people are bringing objects into locations to see how that affects that particular area. Yeah, I like that idea a lot, actually. Now I've got another area of research. <laughs> I mean, that goes into the idea that these are egregoric manifestations uh, with every object that somebody introduces into this pair of weird landscape uh, or location, whatever. They're sending their intent. They are imprinting the location with a portion of their own personality, their own energy, whatever. And they are co-creating the phenomenon and changing it. Yeah. No, I think that sounds very human in in a way. And I say that because I'm thinking of again because this is my my background that's easier for me to fall back into but in classical studies when you look at curse tablets that people would write and then fold up on little lead pieces of i don't want to say paper but they were pieces of lead fold them up and put them away that was their intent the whole idea of cursing someone right is you're putting your intent into this little piece of paper or for us today words just cursing at someone the idea of this intent behind it that you're Mm -hmm. putting out there into the world to manifest in a way that's outside of yourself i like that yeah I like this line of thinking. (laughs) (laughs) This is how I think constantly. Uh, It's just hard to find people who are willing to go into these topics because everybody is very narrow-minded. Everybody wants a ghost to be the soul of a dead person that you can shout Mm -hmm. at for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. See, that also is is narrowing down what I think the paranormal is in general, too. If it's just simply ghosts, that's too narrow of an explanation of what's happening. As you said, like that sounds very human. I think the (laughs) phenomenon... Phenomenon is an integral part of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. If it is reflecting humanity back at us, it is a way for us to kind of come to terms with our own shadow selves. As I said on my episode with Carly, like we, we talked about tarot being used for shadow work, like all paranormal is shadow work in a sense, and not always personal individual shadow work, but a societal and cultural one as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And sometimes, uh, as is the way with people that dive into shadow work, we don't want to acknowledge what we find necessarily. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, so are people still seeing apparitions, let's say, uh, in the Bell Witch Cave? Oh, yeah. That hasn't stopped. I'm still, I'm, I'm friends with the one tour guide there, and I still occasionally check in with the owner. No, they still have activity there. That hasn't, that's never stopped. If anything, and this would also lead into the, the idea of our energy feeding into stuff. Things were quieter in the area during the pandemic and shut, like the shutdown. Mm-hmm. And then actually Walter, who was the owner of the cave, he and his wife, Chris, own the cave. Walter passed away um, last summer, I believe. And so the cave was still shut down for a couple years. They just opened it. 
it this year. And from what I understand, when they first got people coming back to the cave, the um, activity picked up a great deal um, before it kind of evened out to where it was more more like it would be in a typical year. But things still happened to the family when the shutdown was happening. They were still having activity at the house, from what I understand. But um, who knows what the cave was like because they weren't having people in the cave. But once they started allowing tourists to come back, I guess the activity just shot up like crazy uh, to begin with. Anyway, okay. When when you're referring to activity, does that include, let's say, apparitions, like somebody actually seeing a ghost? Yeah. So the activity at the Bell Witch Cave ranges from people seeing ghosts to hearing sounds to being scratched or pushed. Um, It's kind of all over. It's a poltergeist type activity. Mm -hmm. Things will get moved. So it's kind of all over the map there. People just not feeling well when they get into the cave. But uh, yeah, so it's all over the place. That's what I mean by activities. Yes, but what, why, what, where I'm getting at, why I am asking if he, people see an apparition is like, have you ever thought of comparing what people see nowadays as an apparition over there compared to 50 years ago, compared to a century ago, and comparing mm-hmm. the differences between the visuals of the apparition? Because if right. we are co-creating this over time, the more people are going there and experiencing this, then it would be safe to say that the visuals of the apparition and what people describe as seeing would be changing throughout time. Yeah, that's true. That makes sense. I don't know. I haven't found records of what an apparition looked like 50 years ago in that area. Because even when the Bell Witch story happened in the 1800s, they weren't really seeing much. They would see weird, like a weird animal, a dog with a rabbit's head or whatever, but they weren't like seeing the witch. They would hear her or physically be affected by her, but she wasn't like manifesting in some sort of visage for people to see. Today, the story is more centered around the idea that the cave is almost like a a portal of sorts or that there's a portal within the cave. And so you hear the same stories of like a little boy that has walked in and out of the portal. And I can't remember exactly how he's described, but these are stories that you hear when you're on the tour. So that's already a story that isn't just like one and done. It's being repeated. So then wouldn't that keep the cycle going, at least for now, until that story kind of dies down um, or we find some written records somewhere of people saying, oh, I was just in this cave and I saw, I don't know, a horse or something. <laughs> I don't know how we would be able to do that with this particular legend, but it would be interesting to to do that with other places, but you'd have to find a place that wasn't overly popular because once something is popularized, then it's like those words become canon to a certain extent. <laughs> and, uh, those particular entities are already imprinted in the area because it was mm-hmm. written down and that's how we share it. And then, I mean, it may even be something like, well, people used to see a headless ghost or whatever and they don't see it anymore, but it's still written down that at some point it was. So some way down the line, it's already, I mean, it's still in people's heads to a certain extent. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how we would do that. Yeah. I, I find that fascinating because it would then show us like if people really believe that ghosts are just rigidly spirits of the dead and, you know, this apparition that is being seen at this location is of this person who died in 17 blah 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 mm-hmm. then you know the ghost would appear the same consistent consistently throughout a whole century of witnesses seeing the ghost but if it, right. there are changes to the visuals of the ghost then that says that this is more of a co-creation mm-hmm. yeah exactly and that's 
I don't know. That's also where I've liked I've liked to spend some time in research. I haven't been able to do it too much lately, but when I've come across ideas of of ghosts, stories of ghosts, especially in newspaper articles, which is where I got the idea of the the headless ghost line of research that I went down. Every once in a while, you'll come across a story of a headless ghost that they have tied to a person, like they know that somebody was violently decapitated. <laughs> Not that there's an easy way to be decapitated, but you know, some mm-hmm. sort of violent death, and now there's a headless ghost that wanders around two years later, and certainly it is this person. So I've enjoyed looking into the lives of those people so that they can be remembered beyond the headless ghost itself. So they're not just that grotesque memory in a newspaper. Oh yeah, there was this headless ghost that wandered around the railroad tracks after he lost his life. But like, who was he? So that we're not just perpetuating that idea from here forward, I guess, changing the memory a little bit to something that maybe they deserve more than their worst moment. (laughs) Oh, but you know, I see that. I don't see, let's say, the headless ghost as necessarily the spirit of the person who was decapitated. I see this as some kind of manifestation that is there to lure us to go down this rabbit hole of researching into the history of the land. Maybe the land itself wants Mm. us to to remind ourselves of its history. So it creates Mm. these manifestations which are there to lure us into a rabbit hole of research. Let's say it displays to us a headless ghost. So we will look into the history of this land (laughs) and look for somebody who died by decapitation because maybe there is some other historical significant event tied to when that person was alive. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, that's certainly true in the in the one case that I did look up that made it into the the feminine macabre, but the way that you're explaining it reminds me also of other research that I've done more localized to where I live, where I was intrigued by a, a story that I grew up with, my mother telling me about a farmhouse that she grew up in and that it was haunted. It all started with a, a Ouija board and so on. But anyway, when I got older and got the skills to research, I went to the courthouse and started looking up old deeds and land plots and things to, to see if I could find this name that had been passed down. Once I found that name, because it did exist, then I started to expand my research and I found old maps of cemeteries that some of them aren't here anymore because they were plowed over to make uh, fields for farmland, um, for crops. Mm-hmm. So those are gone. <laughs> those cemeteries are gone. They've been gone for a while, but I feel like they should still be remembered. Likewise, I found there is a cemetery at the edge of the farm where I live right now where people went back in the, I think it was in the 60s, a couple came from out of the county to make note of, as they described it, the older cemeteries. So 200 years old or so on. They marked the cemetery, noted even in the 60s that it was in poor condition. They wrote in this, and this is the the only way I could find this book was at like the local or the county genealogical historical society because I didn't even know it existed until then. Hmm. But we get into this cemetery um, and somebody that one of those researchers had noted that it was in such a state of disrepair, but they felt like there was probably more to be found if someone were to just take a pitchfork and start poking around because a lot of the stones were already knocked over and starting to be absorbed by the earth. Well, we've done that. We've gone up with a pitchfork and yeah, we have found more. And one of the people that I found is a four-year-old girl who is not in the census records because she passed away in between the times of census taking. On her headstone though, it's her name and then abbreviations for her parents' names. So now I'm able to connect her to that family. Whether that's important to the family at some point or not, I I don't know, but I still think that it's important on some level that this little four-year-old girl is not forgotten, but she was up until that stone was found because she's not anywhere in the historical records. If someone were to go back and put a family tree together, they're not going to find her. Mm -hmm. She's not there. But here she is just up on the hill buried um, and her stone is there. But if I hadn't started this search looking for that farmhouse owner... (laughs) 
And then expanding it from there, then I would have not found that girl. I mean, I wouldn't have taken the time to do that. And that story wouldn't have been uh, remembered. So maybe there is something to that. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're telling me as a series of synchronicities, which are leading (laughs) you to kind of spearhead the uh, revitalization of the history of the land. It's like Mm -hmm. history itself wants to be remembered and maybe documented properly, retroactively. So (laughs) the land would manifest something which would lure you and send you down this this series of synchronicities where you will do the job of of telling the story of the land for it. Yeah, yeah. That it reminds me of uh, when you had Carly on and she was explaining about some of her cards weren't going to uh she would have ignored them if they hadn't been so drastic (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah we have to get your attention somehow kind of thing i feel like that that's definitely how things have gone for me yes it's like this whole investigation that you're doing research into the history of this land is kind of like tarot but you utilizing uh, historical records instead of tarot uh, tarot deck yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, that's what I find my entertainment in going to the courthouse and looking through these old dusty books and <laughs> spending time on Ancestry.com and, and checking out all kinds of records. This last week, I spent time diving into um, the Native American census, which I had not been I had not looked into that at all prior to this point but there was a a story that I was looking into and I was trying to find a family and um, I will say I don't know if this is the case for all like every decade that they did this but the decade that I found the census records were beautiful because they were typed up and easily therefore legible where (laughs) most census records that you look at are in whoever's cursive handwriting and but it's more like chicken scratch it's not even I mean I can read cursive no problem but it is just absolute chicken scratch where this one was typed out and I'm like, this is great. This makes my job so much easier to just be able to read it without having to guess. Is that an F or an L or a Z? And <laughs> trying to use context clues. That's an aside anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just love the term chicken scratch. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's I mean, that's what it's like chicken scratch or like uh, doctor's handwriting is another thing we say around here. It's like Uh a doctor's signature. You can't read it. Yeah. Okay. Well, (laughs) this was a very fun conversation. I need to be honest with my (laughs) listeners. So I have not heard half of the words (laughs) that (laughs) Heather told me. So this whole experience for me, it was like communicating with the spirit of Heather through a spirit box, um, (laughs) because I'm only getting some words, uh, some uh, portions of sentences, whatnot, and I'm trying to piece together what what the heck is happening. So Mm -hmm. it will be very fun for me when I do editing of this episode and re-listen to everything that you told me. It would be like listening to your EVP recordings. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. I like the way you're looking at it. It's a positive spin on the technology not being helpful. Yes, yes. Oh, man. So I was telling you, I don't know, we did not talk about this, uh, Morgan and I. So I had Morgan Daimler on my show a week ago, and uh, she wrote like 56 books on fairy lore. And she had like issues hearing me for 20 minutes before we ever started recording. It took us so, so many attempts to try and reconnect. And we said like, oh, it's, it's the pixies and just laughed Mm -hmm. at it because that's how you react adequately to the shenanigans of the fey folk Mm -hmm. yeah you gotta laugh it off don't get upset about it (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah and uh, how ironic is it that was with a fairy author and you're a ghost researcher and paranormal investigator (laughs) and now i'm having an evp hour-long session with you where i i need to (laughs) 
<laughs> pick up the pieces and, and interpret what you're telling me. Yeah, yeah, that I think it's perfect. Uh, okay, so for the end, can you tell my listeners where they can find you and plug all your stuff? Okay, so um, you can find me on Instagram. My handle is Pagan Historian. And then for some of my writings, you can check out The Feminine Macabre, Volume 1 and 3, hopefully future volumes as well. You can see some of my former blog posts on Shannon LeGros, Into the Fray, Weird Writer blog, and uh, The Caravan Library of Lore. And uh, follow Small Town Monsters because I am a producer and researcher there, and you'll see a lot of stuff that I'm involved in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I am looking forward to learning from you later on when I'm editing the show and actually hearing what you told me. <laughs> yeah. And I want I want feedback when you're done. I want to know yeah, what you think. Yeah. I, I find it very fun. <laughs> this is very fun. It's like uh, it's like uh, divination. It's like uh, a tarot. Like uh, I, I just love uh, the listeners won't get it because they're going to listen to the whole episode. You're, you're just talking and talking. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, on my side, it's very fun interpreting what you're telling me and trying to think of questions based on just partial uh, sentences. <laughs> right, right. Well, you did a great job. I wasn't feeling like you were not uh, hearing me, except in the parts where you're like, are you talking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're ending it here. And, and listeners, check out all the links in the description. Check out Small Town uh, Monsters and The Feminine Macabre if you're interested in a more bell witch haunted rocks and headless ghosts. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye.